disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You know, as soon as I got the email from from Facebook, I told my mom, I was like, look, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. This is this is it. I'm good. Uh, And she would tell me, are you sure, Michael? Are you sure? And and I was like, no, 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 this is it. You'll see. And as we start touring the the campus and everything, I think it starts settling into my mom when she sees that, right? When I when I go into the, you know, the fishbowl is what they call the meeting room that Zuckerberg would meet in. And when I was sitting there with him and my mom would see through the glass window, I guess she was just kind of standing outside for the 15, 20 minutes or so that we were meeting. And I think at that point she started to realize, okay, like, yeah, maybe he's gonna be okay. <laughs> That's Michael Samen, a self-taught software engineer who joined Facebook at the age of 17. He subsequently did a tour of duty at Google and has since landed at video game platform Roblox. We document how the ravages of subprime Miami helped launch a Silicon Valley legend. What if college isn't right for everyone? What about the hegemony of social media, finding your voice later in life, Michael Samen's book, much, much more. So please stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor, learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. And by the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond, preparing students to be future leaders in a global business world by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Joining me is Michael Samen, a self-taught software engineer who joined Facebook at the age of 18. He subsequently did a tour of duty at Google and has since landed at video game platform Roblox. Samen's book is App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American dream. And you read anything about him, it's fascinating how he really had to come of age uh, in your mid-teens when your parents lost everything and you had to self-teach and figure out a way to support them through the app economy. We're talking the Great Recession. Take me back. One, welcome to the show. I, I'm, I'm so breathless about this because you have so much in your bio. Uh, thank you for joining us finally. No, thank you for having me. I'm uh, really glad to uh, participate in this and, and share what I can. So take me back, please, to uh, we share a hometown of Miami and your parents, you have you come from a Peruvian Bolivian immigrant family and they had Mm -hmm. a restaurant business, do I understand? Yes, Uh, they owned a Peruvian chicken restaurant in Kendall in Miami. And it was I mean, it was everything to our family, right? That kind of provided everything for us. We would eat there. That'd be our source of food, our source of income. Uh, and as a kid, you don't really think about that kind of stuff, right? But sure. uh, as we grew up, we started to notice that things maybe weren't a little, you know, weren't all that great as our parents would stay up later and later at night at the restaurant. Uh, they would ask us to try and help out whenever we could. Um, and a lot of it we thought was normal. And only later on in life, you know, did I realize, oh, wait, my parents coming home at three in the morning is not a normal thing for kids to see every day. We kind of saw it as fun sometimes even. 
So, so there's a lot to that, I think, that was uh, interesting at that point in time. So it's not like you're in elementary school working in the back of kitchen or chopping up parsley or cilantro no, or other things. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have been very good at it either, to, <laughs> to be honest. Um, if anything, it was more so like when we would come back home from school, uh, we wouldn't be able to go back home because there was no one to take care of us at home. So uh, my parents would take us to the restaurant and we would sit in the back and they would have us do our homework there. And my dad would look through the security camera that he had in the back of, of the restaurant to make sure that we did our homework. Uh, and we would just sit there and we would eat there and we would just kind of wait until they were done with work. And most days it was until closing, right? So we'd basically just be sitting around uh, in the back of the restaurant trying to not you know, cause any trouble uh, until maybe 10 or 11 p.m. Michael, would you uh, ever get that kind of the, the immigrant parent hand on shoulders stern talk? I mean, I, I was born in Iran and we came to Miami. Uh, in the late 70s, and my parents had to reinvent, and, and no shortage of recollections of my mother pulling me aside and saying, look, we are sacrificing for you and your baby brother. Like, you're going to school. That's what we expect of you. Did, you, did, they, did they communicate the expectations on your shoulders? Like, you were expected to not just do well in school, but to be self-sufficient at some point? Oh, yes, 100%. I mean, they, they came to the United States uh, with a lot of challenges. Uh, my my parents, both of them having problems, you know, figuring it out with their families and how they might uh, essentially be on their own if they were to go to the United States. My dad basically got cut off from his family when he left uh, and my mom, you know, to, to many degrees as well. So both of them really kind of since I was a kid would always tell us, although they didn't finish college or they didn't get a bachelor's degree or anything like that, that they felt it was it was crucial for us to. And uh, my mom would always tell me as as things started getting more difficult, my mom would always tell me, like, look at how your dad and I are struggling. Look at how we work so long. You don't like seeing us working so many hours, but this is our life. And if you want this life, then you're going to just, you know, don't go to college and, and you'll have it. But if you want to mm. have something better, if you want to to have a life where you don't have to be working until 11 p.m. every day stressing about the the restaurant and 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 making sure that things go well enough to be able to buy the food for the day um then you have to go to college it's the only other way and they would and they would tell us this all the time which is ironic because I didn't end up going to college but this is something that <laughs> since I was a kid uh, I was told and I took very seriously and I was I was really scared about you know my sister maybe took it a little differently but uh, I certainly was terrified of of the prospect of of ending up in a situation like my parents how much did you enjoy school? How much did you feel at home where you where you went to school? I mean, no, really, how much did you rise to the occasion or school was... I absolutely hated school. I wow. hated it. Um, I, I'll be honest, I think in elementary school, uh, very early on, I was good at it, but I kind of saw it as like, I went in there and I did what I needed to do to get the good grades and not piss anybody off and, you know, make sure the teacher liked me. <laughs> got the good grades. And then, uh, you know, I was in the top of my class in, in elementary school uh, throughout throughout those years. Um, then I'd go home and that was it. I didn't try and interact with the kids in my class because I felt like this is not where I want to spend my time. I, I, I really didn't know half of the kids in my school. And I'm pretty sure most wow. of them didn't even know what I sounded like because I, I didn't open my mouth. And so it was like one of those things where I'll, I'll give you an example. At the end of fifth grade, I think we had like a 
a, a pizza day or whatever with our class. And all the kids took their desks and huddled around in circles. And uh, I I left my desk where it was and I just sat there and didn't look at any other kid. And I just sat there. And my mom came in to pick us up because, you know, all the kids have their parents come and pick them up. And the teacher, you know, mm-hmm. uh, goes and tells my mom, uh, uh, you know, Michael's just sitting right there. My mom's like, why isn't he sitting with all the other kids? The teacher tells my mom, oh, he he didn't find that interesting. He didn't want to do that. <laughs> my mom's like, all right, uh, strange kid I got. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, and then I left the class and everything took a 180 in, uh, in middle school wow. as soon as I got there. But that, that was really my elementary well, school. Well, life. back back up, back yeah. up, back up. Um, when did you get your first computer? What was it, a 386, a 486? When did you <laughs> suddenly realize that this is something you could talk to in your introversion, that you could communicate and yeah, express? Yeah, so, so we had like a family Dell computer. I don't know what model it was, but it was definitely beige. So, you know, it was like from that era when that, that was the that was the modern computer at the time. Uh, and I had a, right. a disc for the uh, Encarta Encyclopedia uh, that my parents got me. And so I would use that and I'd go on NickJr.com and, uh, you know, the, all the kids <laughs> websites where I would try and download things. And oddly enough, my, my favorite thing to do on the computer at that point was um, I would look up worksheets to learn things like math or or whatnot. And, and I talk about how I didn't like school, but I think I didn't like the social aspect of it because sure. I would spend most of my time at home printing out worksheets from like kids' websites to learn how to do school. And I would try and like teach my sister stuff. Uh, and we would do it like we were playing pretend. This was like the way I would have fun, right. uh, oddly. Uh, but yes, that was that was my entertainment. My parents would freak out because they'd run out of printer paper because I kept printing everything. Uh, but I was fascinated by that. So, so that was really the start of it all. I mean, 20 years later, could you in your wildest dreams imagine kind of seamless Wi-Fi, ubiquitous Wi-Fi and Khan Academy? Uh, you're talking about worksheets, <laughs> worksheets on a dial-up modem, I imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, the, top of the, oh, the top of the line at the time, right? I was like, I, I, was, I was blown away by the power of the internet at that point. And I mean, I would go on the encyclopedia and then I started to notice that the encyclopedia CD uh, wasn't as up to date as Wikipedia was as it was coming up at the time. And so I stopped using the CD and my dad would ask me, like, why aren't you using the CD we bought you? I was like, no, the Internet has more up to date information. And, you know, that was back in the day when the parents would tell you not to trust the Internet. Now, now it's kind of turned around. Uh, but, but that was that was certainly the case at the time. So it was interesting because I feel like a lot of kids will ask their parents questions about the world. As you get older, you want to know why the sky is blue, things like that. Uh, I never I never asked my parents. I instead just kind of went to the Internet because, I mean, I would ask my parents at the start and my parents would be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> why do you ask me? That's why we bought you that, you know, that encyclopedia thing. Why don't you use that to look it up? Because I kept asking so many questions. And so I ended up just using the Internet to do that. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I really got my start. Michael, uh, we're getting, you know, fast forward to 2007, 2008, 2009, subprime truly walloped South Florida. I reported on a lot of this. I remember you could, you know, when I was doing a story, you could look at the skyline of Miami and it kind of looked, you know, downtown Miami looked bombed out. Uh, So many condos were empty. You would take tours with real estate agents and whole hallways, you would hear the smoke smoke detector, battery, alarms going off because the places were so derelict. Uh, People were talking about Miami truly in a depression. And this really took your parents' business down, took the restaurant down. Tell us about that. Completely. Oh my gosh. It was was terrifying. You know, uh, my parents, and I think a lot of Miami in general, they're, they're immigrants, right? They come from other countries where 
this almost predatory system that the U.S. operates under doesn't exist, right? There's, it's not, it's not like that in other countries. There's no credit system where they encourage you to spend as much money as you can and then pay it back over monthly installments like mm. the U.S. would offer at that time, right? And so a lot of this kind of allowed my parents in many ways to spend well beyond their means uh, when I was a kid. And this allowed us to have all kinds of birthday parties and amazing things. And, and really, it, it kind of introduced me, gave me a glimpse of what the good life could be like. Later on, realizing as the entire recession took place that this was a house of cards and it was falling apart wow. before my eyes. Uh, but it was really what gave me a glimpse of what could be possible, what a life I could live if I really did succeed. My parents at that point uh, decided to get in on it, just like all the other parents, and started getting apartments everywhere, right? Like they were like, oh, our neighbor told us we should invest. So we got a couple of apartments in, you know, this part of Miami and we got some in Orlando. And of course, all of that fell apart. And obviously they couldn't rent them out and the whole the whole thing just bust. But they were giving out loans to everybody. Uh, my parents certainly weren't in a situation to be able to take out a loan. And they gave them all kinds of loans and they were able to get all these places for a fraction of of what they would otherwise have been able to get them for. So. So really, it was one of those things that as a kid, I didn't know it. But looking back on it, it was it was incredible to see. And I remember vividly uh, uh, my neighborhood uh, when I was a kid, I was sixth, seventh grade. One by one, uh, the kids in my neighborhood would just disappear. I just didn't know where they went. And I want to say like two years in the span of two years, every single person on my block was gone. Every kid that I grew up with uh, was no longer there. And I would ask my parents, like, where, where are people going? What, what's going on? My mom at that point started to tell me about how things were changing in the country. Things weren't mm. getting, you know, they were getting worse. And that's when I started making the apps uh, to try and turn things around and, and save our home or at least try to. So I don't understand. The light bulb went off atop your head like I can do apps and make revenue out of this or you had. I mean, t tell me about the first time you realized that there was a mobile economy. There was an iPhone economy. The iPhone, of course, yeah. was launched in 2007, starts to become. Yes. The smartphone writ large becomes ubiquitous over the next four years, whether Android or, yes. or uh, iOS. And how did you familiarize yourself with app design? Yeah, so I, uh, I was always a fan of Apple as a kid. I, I thought it was uh, really inspiring just to see like the branding. I was always obsessed with the entire company um, since I was a kid. And I would watch their events online. Uh, I was a total nerd, uh, obviously. And as the... Uh, I think the iPhone was announced. I was trying to tell my parents about it and how excited I was about the iPhone launch. I would tell my mom in Spanish, I'm like, mira, mira, nuevo iPhone, you know, this is going to change the world, I would tell her. And, and you know, my mom was like, I don't know about that. That just sounds like a, a business phone. My dad would tell me, you don't need that. Like, you know, that's for business people. I'm like, no, no, it has so many things. It has email, it has the web. My dad's like, do you even have an email address? Because I was like 12, right? <laughs> 11, 12. I'm like, yeah, I have an email. I get email. Like, you know, I'm trying to think <laughs> about that. So I finally convinced all my uncles because I have like 27 million uncles. And I convinced them all uh, for my birthday to give me a small chunk of money that I could add up in total because iPhone was so expensive back then too. Add up all the, the money that I got for my birthday from all my uncles and I bought myself an iPhone. And from that point, I started thinking about how I could make money off of it. The biggest reason I thought I could make money off of it was because Steve Jobs said it. And I was super gullible, obviously. I I watched the presentation that he did in 2008 uh, following the iPhone launch. And uh, he talked about an app store and how they would allow people to make apps and it would be super easy. And when he said that, I thought, OK, well, if he says it's easy, I, I guess it'll be easy. 
So I, so I was like, all right, I'm going to make an app. And, and of course, uh, you know, it's not just making any app. I decided at that point, I needed to make an app that would have an attraction uh, that wouldn't depend on my marketing skills. And at the time, one of the most popular games was Club Penguin, which was recently acquired by Disney at that point. Um, and so I thought it would be a great idea to make a, a reference guide for Club Penguin, somewhat like an encyclopedia of Club Penguin with all the cheats sure. and tricks. And I would charge $2 for it, right? Because back in the day, you could charge money for an app and people would pay. Uh, and so uh, I did that. And uh, after a couple of months, or not even a couple of months, after a couple of days, the app was making like $200, $300 a day. Uh, and I was, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, my... My parents didn't believe me either uh, until the money came in. And then I, they thought I did something illegal online. <laughs> so I had to clarify that to them. Uh, but that was certainly uh, that was certainly how it started. Uh, joining me is Michael Saman, a self-taught software engineer who joined Facebook at the age of 18. You're now not even 25. You've done tours of duty at Google. You've since joined Roblox. Your book is App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. Michael, I want to explain this famous story of how you you, you realized, I, I think you, you were due $5,000 or so once in 2010, and you ran into your parents' bedroom and said, I just made $5,000 on this app. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, the first month, uh, Apple sent out the check, right? For, for the first month, they deposited it in the bank account. And so I go over to my mom and say, hey, Apple, just uh, paid. Check the bank account. Check the bank account. It should be in there. Uh, because I promised my mom I would pay back $100 that the developer license cost when uh, I asked her to do it. And she told me, all right, well, if you don't pay us back, you're going to have to wash the dishes in the restaurant to make up that money because we don't have any of it. Um, and I said, all right, but I'll pay you back. And, and so I told her, look, 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 the money came in after the first month. My mom's like, all right, I'll check. OK. And she checks her account and there's like 5000 and something dollars in there. And she's like, Michael, what did you do? <laughs> like very <laughs> concerned, right? Like, like very concerned. Uh, at that point, I was like, I told you, you know, this is what we were going to make. I, I was making this money. And I was, what, 13 years old at the time. So she was like, OK, uh, what, what about this app? Can you tell me more about this? And at that point, she started really trying to understand what was going on to make sure we weren't in trouble or anything. But I think it was a couple of weeks after that, that uh, CNN found out and I started doing interviews on TV. And then all of South America found out about it and my family back in Peru and the whole thing blew up and I became this like app kid uh, where people started, you know, following me around in school uh, for interviews and they started filming documentaries and it just became a, like it became a whole thing. It, it turned my life upside down. And in many ways it was good, but in other ways uh, it, it wasn't. It, it really wasn't all that great. You know, it says in this in this Australian uh, newspaper profile, <laughs> I can't believe uh, even Australia was knocking. You had more than doubled your monthly app earnings to 14000 Wait, $18,500, and the media dubbed you a tech wunderkind. It says, though, behind the scenes at home, the family's situation was still dire and that they were yeah. losing their jobs and the family home. So yep. things were simultaneously falling apart for your family economics. Explain that. Yeah, so as I started making the money, uh, the things were getting worse, you know, in the economy. People weren't showing up to the restaurant. Uh they had to work longer hours and they would get less income. And the house that we had was in foreclosure and they were trying to save it. And so all the money that I had, all the money that I was earning at the time, I told my mom, like, all I really want is an iPhone and a laptop. And what else does a 13 year old want? Nothing. Right. So I was like, just use the money for whatever you need. 
Uh, and I probably should have done that with more guidance uh, in hindsight, mm-hmm. <laughs> given that my parents maybe didn't necessarily know how to best use the money at the time. Uh, but they went ahead and tried to save the house and they paid thousands of dollars for lawyers to help out. And as soon as I think it was the banks got their stimulus and all of that happened, then we just got a letter from the bank that said, nope, sorry, that's it. You're getting kicked out of your house. Here's the eviction date. You're done. And uh, my mom was shocked because this was the house that I grew up in since I was a kid. Uh, we'd never known any other house and she just couldn't believe it. So so at that point, you know, we we ended up moving to a smaller kind of like a, a townhome apartment as like a, you know, like, what do we do now type situation. And my mom had to sell all her furniture uh, that didn't fit in this apartment. And to make up for it, I, I tried to buy Philips Hue bulbs that were coming out and a, a Nest thermostat. And I told her, look, look, like, we're going to we're going to use tech. It'll, it'll be cool. Like, it's all right. Uh, but my mom would still drive by uh, for years. Uh, she would drive by our neighborhood and just kind of sit out there and look at the house. And it was really depressing. Uh, you know, it was one of those things that my mom's dad helped her with the initial house. Uh, I think it was he, he had given her like the last amount of money that he had uh, to help her pay for that house when she moved mm. there. And then she lost it all and, and we never got it back, right? So, so it's one of those things where she, to this day, you know, tries not to think too much about it because it's just, it's just really painful. Michael, how are you splitting time between school, which becomes a really difficult <laughs> place between, I think, ages 13 and graduation. Oh, and, yeah. And app, app developing. Tell us about the yeah. behind the scenes. Well, I was, I was cheating on my homework. <laughs> I was asking people if they can let me copy it. I was, I was a mess in school because at that point, I, making apps was no longer fun at that point for me. At that point, it, it started becoming a, a stressful thing, right? Because it was mm. like, if I didn't help my family out, my mom was telling me we would have to go back to Peru. We would have to sell everything that we had. And I certainly felt like there was pressure for me to make sure that I could provide for the family. So, so I did everything I could at that point. And that meant, you know, not really caring about school. I also started thinking, trying to think rationally about what school meant and what a college degree meant and what it meant to get a, a job and how to go about that. And I rationalized that ultimately, Getting a job is about building trust with a company and that a company needs to trust that you're going to be able to do the job that they want you to do. And that that starts from knowing people at the company that can vouch for your skills. Uh, and only when they need to hire more people that they don't know or don't have in their network, do they then use a college degree as a backup, mm-hmm. as a fallback uh, to, to kind of build the credibility around the person's skill set. So. So as I started to think about that, I think I was like 15, 16, I I started to realize that while a college degree is important, if I can manage to prove my skill set via what I'm doing to try and save my family's situation at the same time, maybe there's a way that I could luck out with both of them. And so I told my mom I was going to make a free app that wasn't going to cost any money. I wasn't going to make any revenue off of it, but that the goal was to get as many users as I could so that we could get the attention necessary to maybe get an acquisition out of the app or get a, an attention from a company that might want to hire me. And my mom was like, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> we need the money. Are you sure? Why are you sure that's even going to work? And I used the last bit of money that I had on ads on Instagram and Facebook to try and promote the game. And that was actually, I got very lucky. That was, that was actually exactly what I needed uh, to kickstart the app. And, and that ended up getting millions of downloads. And from there, Zuckerberg and, and all of Facebook found out about what I was doing and it hit the top charts. And, 
at that point, I ended up uh, appearing at F8, uh, Facebook's annual conference, via video uh, that I had sent them, uh, sharing what I had built. And that's when they extended the offer for me to start there uh, when I was uh, 17. Was this in 2017? Uh, no, this was uh, 2013, 2013, So 2013, you're 17. How did, how did you even meet Mark Zuckerberg? How did he get in touch? So I was building um, a number of games that were free and, and they were doing pretty well in the app store and they were getting a, a bit of traction. And I used a backend service called Parse that at the time was recently acquired by Facebook. You know, all of this is a lot of circumstance. Mm. And I had built the app based on that. And so I, I was trying to get press for my app because I felt like if I couldn't get anyone to talk about my app, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so, of course, at that point, I decided... Uh, to reach out in a desperate last-minute attempt uh, to the developer of the backend service that I had built my app off of to see if they would write about me in their little blog that nobody read. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I reached out to them and I asked them to do it and they went ahead and did it and I got the article up there. And then as they were acquired by Facebook, Facebook just happened to have an event at their company where they needed to highlight their recent acquisition and a story about you know how their that acquisition that they just made uh, was impacting uh, the developer community. And then, of course, when they reached out to them inside of Facebook, they thought about it. And given the article that they had written, they reached out to me and said, hey, uh, we would like to feature you in this video that we're doing for Facebook because they just acquired us. But it's a small video. Just record it, you know, as soon as you can. And I almost forgot about it. I recorded it in my pajamas, like on a weekday night <laughs> um, on photo booth on my computer. I thought like five people were going to see it. And it turns out that the entire company across every office in London and Texas and Seattle and San Francisco, everyone, including Zuckerberg, watched me in my pajamas broadcasted throughout the entire company um, talking about my app. And of course, at that point, I think now I find out later, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was watching that and he turns over to the CEO of the backend company that he had just acquired and tells him we should hire this kid. And of course, they all, they all forgot about it. They all forgot about what he said at that point. And so nobody followed up for a week. But luckily, a recruiter overheard Zuckerberg saying that in that event. And then the recruiter followed up with Zuckerberg and others to try and get my contact information. And that's when I got the contact uh, and I got the email uh, while I was in math class. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty crazy. I, I just when I got that email on my laptop and I was in my class, I literally just put my my face on the on the table of my of my math class. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I am never coming back here <laughs> ever again. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I, I have to I have to take this opportunity. Yeah. And, and the email, you know, it was like wow. they, they wanted to reach out to me. They wanted uh, me to to work with them. And then Mark Zuckerberg wanted to fly me out uh, to California to meet with him. And I was in Miami at the time. So I told my mom and she was like, there's no way you're going to California without me. <laughs> uh, so I had to follow up and say, can, can my mom come? <laughs> and I was, I think I was 16 at that time. So, so yeah, so my mom came with me and it was, it was crazy. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Michael Saman, a Miami product, self-taught software engineer who famously joined Facebook at the age of, what was it, 17? 17, yeah. So tell us about the job interview and the first day and getting flown out with mom to... This billionaire, this, this, the, <laughs> one of the most covered people in all of American business. What the heck was that like? 
was it was crazy. It it didn't feel real, uh, for the most part. I I mean, flying out there, my mom was frustrated uh, the whole time because she kept telling me as a kid that when I was going out into the real world, I would have to learn how to do my dishes. I would have to learn how to do my laundry. I would have to do all these things. And here they were giving us a tour of this Disney World like campus where. They give us the food. They do our laundry for us. They they pay for our transportation, and they give us basically everything we ever wanted. And my mom's just like, "What the hell? This isn't fair." <laughs> you know, now now you're gonna go out there and you're gonna get everything you wanted. Um, and and so really, it was. I mean, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I I think the the most remarkable thing for me was just how regular Mark looked. He just looked like. He wasn't a billionaire, if that makes any sense. Like, I just, I just, I guess I didn't really know what a billionaire looked like. I, I just knew he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so the entire time I was just thinking, oh my gosh, he is a billionaire. How does all that money fit in him? Like, I was like, is he going to explode? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. It was, it was really grandiose, but it was also kind of, uh, kind of uh, the opposite of what I expected. You know, there's an there's an element of kind of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory here. You're there with your mother looking at at, at the Facebook plex. Yes, very you know, amazing much. Om- omelet chefs, and you have your choice of oat milk, almond milk, everything at the coffee machine. But how much <laughs> of this was? I mean, I can imagine on the flight there, you're 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 saying to mom, "Look, I understand I'm supposed to go to college. I'm understanding that's our way of social mobility, and that's the social." contract in the United States and why you and dad work so hard. But this is a guy who went to Harvard and dropped out of Harvard. And similarly, yeah. Bill Gates, Bill Gates dropped out. Michael Dell dropped out of what was the yeah. University of Texas in his dorm room. And you, or are you trying to tell your mom on the way there? And especially yes. when you're there, mama, maybe there's another way. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, my mom was worried uh, from, I think earlier in the year when I told her my plan, which was to make this free app that then would get the attention of companies. And then those companies would reach out to me and maybe I would get hired or it would get acquired. And then I wouldn't have to go to college because I remember at the time I would go to my college counselor at my school and my college counselor would tell me, your grades are just not there. You have D's and F's and you have really bad grades in your classes. You're just not going to get in. And I remember applying to those schools and getting rejected to every Ivy League school I applied to. I got rejected everything. And I remember telling my mom, like, look, it's either this or community college, the local community college by uh, by Kendall. Um, so, you know, I, as soon as I got the email from from Facebook, I told my mom, I was like, look, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. This is this is it. Like, I, I'm good. Uh, and she would tell me, are you sure, Michael? Are you sure? And and I was like, no, 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 this is this is it. You'll see. And as we start touring the, the campus and everything, I think my, it starts settling into my mom. When she sees that, right? When I when I go into the you know the fishbowl is what they call the meeting room that Zuckerberg uh, would meet in, and when I was sitting there with him and my mom would see through the glass window, I guess she was just kind of standing outside for the 15, 20 minutes or so that we were meeting. And I think at that point she started to realize, okay, like yeah, maybe he's gonna be okay, <laughs> like maybe it's gonna be fine. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's kind of how I've always played my life. It's always been a risk, uh, a risk game. I like to say that I'm risk averse, but to be honest, it's it's calculated risk. Uh, you got to think a lot about it, uh, think about every possibility, and then and then take the jump. My high school even refused to give me my diploma, my high school diploma, because I I just didn't have the grades and I didn't have the attendance, and they weren't really happy with me uh, going to meet with Mark Zuckerberg. They told me. They were like, Mark Zuckerberg can wait. If he wants to meet with you, Mark Zuckerberg can wait. 
And so I said, all right. So I told Mark Zuckerberg, no. And I told them, no, no, I'm kidding. Of course I went and I didn't care what my school said, right? Um, and uh, yeah. And so it's one of those things where like I told my mom, look, I don't want that diploma either. If they don't want to give it to me, that's fine. That's, you know, that's up to them. And I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep learning the way I've been learning since I grew up, right? Since I started, which was, I use the internet. I ask the questions that I want to ask and I keep digging until I, I figure out the answer. Michael, I got to ask you, uh, to the extent you're comfortable sharing it, what, what did they offer you? What was your first salary? <laughs> uh, my first salary, and I'm, I'm happy to share this at this point. I mean, it's been like, what, seven, eight years. The first salary that I had uh, at Facebook, they offered me, it was about $110,000 as a base. Uh-huh. And I think uh, total comp was like 200 and something thousand a year. So what did your mom say when you, you, you showed her that letter? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I didn't know I shouldn't be sharing my income with everybody. So I was like, oh, look what I made. I told my mom. And I mean, my mom's first thought, I, my mom was crying. My, my dad was crying, you know, uh, when I told them that I got I got the offer. Because originally, originally, I was I was an intern for a few months because they couldn't hire an underage kid, right? That I couldn't sign a contract. So I was working, you know, temporarily internship. And then when I turned 18, uh, they converted me full time. But there was always a question in the back of my mind of what if they don't convert me? And so uh, in that time, my parents were using up all the money I was earning as an intern. And that was, I think, about twenty twenty five thousand uh, dollars that I had earned over a couple of months. And they had spent it all. Um, and so my parents were really worried because I didn't have any money. And so and so when I got that conversion, my parents just they, they couldn't handle it. They, they were relieved. They were relieved to see it. You know, they, they felt in many ways and and it's not their fault. They did everything they could, but they felt a little guilty for, you know, the pressure that I was I was under. I don't feel like any any kid should have that kind of pressure, you know, at that age uh, to have to help their family. And, you know, I talk about how I did it out of generosity. I was so happy. Of course, I want to help my parents. But but I was worried, too. I was worried about my future. I was worried that that I wouldn't be able to pay for college or that. You know, I, I had earned, I think, almost a quarter million dollars from 13 to 17 years old, and all that money had been gone. So as soon as I got the job at Facebook, ironically, I had to ask a coworker of mine if he could give me $400 before my first paycheck came in so I could pay rent when I was living out in California. And I didn't have money to pay rent. I was like 18 years old on my own in California asking. And so, and so of course, uh, he, he was kind enough to offer me the $400, gave it to me in cash, and uh, one day at work. And and then I used that money to help pay for that first month of rent. And after that, of course, I ended up paying him back and super grateful for that because, you know, it's one of those things that you can't imagine how opposite the two worlds that I was living were, uh, where, you know, I had this documentary being filmed about me in Univision about how this great success or whatever. And I'd go to South America and there'd be like 7,000 kids waiting for me in an auditorium uh, for me to tell them about how I could succeed in this world. And at the same time, we had no money. We had just been evicted. Um, and, and we were fighting almost every night uh, amongst my, my parents and I about what to do with the money and, and what little we had left. Oh, wow. Uh, so what about your personal coming of age, realizing that you, were, you, you didn't get to go to college, you did not enjoy high school, you tried to whiz through classes, I don't know but much of your social life. Did you have Really, any time to kind of discover yourself now that you were suddenly fast tracked to becoming a a well earning adult. Well, I started. I started trying. I had my theories. I, I I was severely overweight because the stresses of all of this just 
forced me to want to eat McDonald's all the time. And I, I became addicted to McDonald's. I'd eat McDonald's three times a day when I was a kid. And I skipped physical education completely. I didn't do any exercise whatsoever. I just worked on my laptop all day, uh, all night. And so obviously my posture deteriorated, my, my health deteriorated, and my entire life was like my body was just kind of dying. I, I was at a point where the doctors were telling me if I continued out along that track, I would end up with diabetes. And so I didn't know what to do until I went to Facebook, of course, and they offered me all of these things where they had free personal trainers and they had um, they had the free gyms and the food wow. was just so plentiful that I didn't have to like eat like I was eating my last meal. You know, when you when you don't have a lot of money, you go to McDonald's you eat whatever you can, you know, you're like, I need to eat, I need to get full so that I don't have to go and eat again. But when you have as much food as you ever wanted, like I had at Facebook, I just go and grab whatever I wanted. I just only ate when I was hungry. And I started just dropping the weight. I lost like 70 pounds over the first seven months, like in an instant, just because of the access that I had to food and the lack of stress from that. And, And it changed my life at that point. And of course, as soon as that happened, um, I started thinking, all right, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm not so undesirable now. Maybe I should go try and date, right? So I downloaded Tinder um, and I started trying to swipe around and, and meet girls and stuff. I, I didn't know. I, I never really socialized with anyone at that point. Mm-hmm. And the only people that I had socialized with were uh, 15 years older than me and were my coworkers. So uh, so so it was really it was really weird. It was really awkward. I was trying my best to learn how to do it. And for the longest time. I didn't realize just how much the lack of social interactions that I had as a kid had impacted uh, the way that I communicated with people or, or just the, you know, the social norms that I never learned. What I tried to do as a kid to overcome this desire for socializing was my sister would invite her friends hmm. uh, to, our, to our house and they would hang out. And so I would bring my laptop over and I'd ask my sister if I could sit in her room while she's socializing with her friends, just to kind of listen in and feel like I'm a part of their socializing uh, while I'm coding. And that was enough for me to kind of feel like I was around other people and I could kind of hear what they were up to. Eventually, I became friends with them, just how much I, I would listen to, to what they were up to. Uh, but that was really my only exposure at that point. And so as I started to try and socialize with more people, I realized it was a really tough situation. Now, obviously, I'm in a very privileged position with the, the success I've had in my career and and the resources that I now have at my disposal. But there's no denying that there's a, a lack of or I guess a distancing that I have between other people, given my my experiences where I either can relate to people in similar life stages as me that are maybe 15 years older. Mm. And so I can talk to them about work. I can talk to them about career in a similar path, uh, but they maybe don't have the same interests that I have right at the same age. Uh, that I'm in. Or I can talk to people that are my age that have similar interests as me, but maybe don't have the same career stage and and therefore maybe can't do some of the things that I might want to do with that luxury that I have. So so there's really a there's really no group where I can just feel like I'm amongst people like me uh in that way. Um yeah. well Michael tell me about the move to Google and everything else that happened with activism. I've seen you mentioned kind of in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, the book yeah. is App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. You're now uh, just shy of 25. So a tremendous amount has gone on in your life since kind of your, your your early teen years. So how did Google happen for starters? Yeah, so so it was actually pretty funny. I um I had a 
an interview that I did at Facebook. So I was interviewing people at Facebook who are coming in as directors or uh, senior product managers uh, to work on the teenage initiative uh, that I was trying to build out at the company. Um, and so I would go in and I would kind of interview them a little bit and, and give the other directors at the company a, an assessment, I guess, of whether or not they knew what they were talking about with my demographic at that point. And uh, one of them that was really amazing over there uh, ended up not taking the job uh, with Facebook, ended up going to work at Google. And later on, after the Snapchat, you know, stories uh, scare went away and we had successfully launched Instagram stories, we had successfully done a lot of things uh, for the teenage demographic. And I was looking for something new to do. He happened to reach out to me again over Facebook and said, hey, uh, remember me? Uh, we talked a little bit. I ended up taking the job at Google. We're working on some cool stuff in virtual reality and gaming. And I think that might be up your alley. What, what do you think? And I ended up talking to him a little bit about it. I thought maybe that might be worth it to try something new. I'd never worked at any other company in my life. And I felt like it was the opportunity for me to get an additional perspective on what different companies are like and just have a little bit more experience in that regard. And so I decided to take that opportunity. And when I joined Google, of course, uh, the moment I ended up signing, they ended up kind of reducing the headcount at the VR space. And they were kind of winding down a lot of those projects. It took about a year for me to kind of finalize the Google deal. And uh, I ended up joining the Google Assistant and then worked at Area 120 um, at the company there. And, and that was me kind of building out a social gaming startup within Google and really just exploring ideas for the company, which then led to a few of the other things that they built out such as uh, YouTube Shorts and, and some of the other things that are coming. So let's get into a difficult conversation here. Facebook, for starters, not just the traditional Facebook platform, but owns Instagram, owns WhatsApp. It bought Beluga, Messenger. It's kind of ubiquitous in your life, has, has the VR platform with Oculus. There's been a tremendous amount of scrutiny that uh, sociologists, child psychologists, and the like, Congress, in bringing forward Mark Zuckerberg and even executives from Apple and from Google, that the smartphone, which after all, you were trying to convince your mom back in 2008 that, mom, this is a thing, that it's become yeah. too powerful, that it is, it is, it is yeah. now the altar with which every adolescent has to worship at, that every, every person measures their every worth person. as yeah. a teen. And so how, uh, what kind of self-reflection have you had kind of in you helping these companies create the user experience for the next generation of users? There's a tremendous amount of pushback. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because this is so new. Nobody knows how any of this works. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And what, what are the effects that these products are going to have on people in 20, 30 years? What are the effects that these products are going to have on people who were born into them that don't know a world without likes and comments or follower counts on their profiles, right? How is this going to impact the way that, that we see ourselves and see other people? It's, it's scary to think about because... To be honest, I think when this started, nobody was thinking about this. No, nobody was thinking about this now at the companies. Now, were people thinking about this out of it? Were there researchers? Were there sociologists thinking about this, trying to give warnings? Certainly, right? There certainly were. Um, but to the degree that they are today, to the degree that we're listening to them now, I, I don't think so. I, I think a lot of people just saw these tools like they saw the early internet. They, they thought, oh, this is just giving people more access to information. You know, more access to information. They can connect with other people, and that's great. But here's the deal: are you are you the customer? Are you the customer or the product? If it's well, free, that's, well, that's a challenge. I I really think the, the the biggest challenge with this is at first it was about information, right? At first it was about how do we get people to have more access to more information. The problem is 
people can't absorb all the information in the world. And so you have to start selecting information to show people. And then the question comes up, well, what do you show people? What do you recommend? And then you start asking, well, how do you recommend it? And who builds the tool that recommends it? What are the rules of that recommendation system? And how do those rules of those recommendation systems end up affecting the society and what people know about? Because if you control an algorithm that decides what to recommend to users, and that algorithm ends up recommending things to users that lean in a certain way or another way, you are essentially guiding a user's idea of what they know or don't know. There's information, there's news that I haven't heard about because the algorithms across the internet have just decided that I don't need to know about that. And so I don't know it and I can't know it. And because I don't know what I don't know, there's no way for me to find out. And just like that, you have news that you haven't heard about. And in, across the world, we're experiencing this thing where like everything that we know about is basically controlled by these algorithms. And the scary part about it is we don't fully understand how they all work. We have the general rules that we give them to optimize for in terms of clicks and whatnot. And personally, I feel like we should be optimizing these things for meaningful engagement, not necessarily emotional reactions, which I think a lot of these articles are currently optimized for. But we don't really know how they work. We don't really know how these things select uh, articles for users. And so that, that I think is the thing that scares me the most about this is not necessarily, you know, the, oh, like, how are you going to make the money off of it? There's always going to be some type of financial incentive that a company is going to look for to sustain its business. The, the way I see it is, what's the danger of selecting the information that a person uses to then make decisions in their life? And the problem is, it's not so easy to solve, right? Because you can't just show a user all the information. It's too much. They don't have enough time in the day to look at all of it. So who's going to select what to show? And this is really why I find it interesting, that the question of freedom of speech, because we're in a world where you can say whatever you want. Everyone can talk. But if everyone can talk all at once, you can't hear anybody. So someone needs to select certain voices to be heard. And then the question is like, well, how do you decide what gets shown to who and how? So, so the question is about distribution, right? Freedom of distribution. Who, who has a right to be distributed? Well, Michael, uh, how, big is too, how big is too big? Facebook is massive. Mark Zuckerberg is one of the planet's yeah. richest people. It has yeah. a duopoly on advertising with Google, as you know. It has it 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 controls swaths of real estate on the smartphone, on the desktop, on the laptop. Yeah. Um, at what point do you wonder, kind of in judging history by his predecessor, Bill Gates, when things got really hot for Bill Gates in 2000, he stepped back from the company and he became philanthropic. He didn't want to be a bete noir, kind of a yep. whipping child for Capitol Hill. Why doesn't why doesn't Facebook and I know you might have a non disparagement or you know non whatever <laughs> with them but why don't they just ease on this a little bit how much is how much is is enough is too much well that's that's the question I I've been thinking about too is like how where how does this end or or what comes next you know what happens if let's say Facebook were to be broken up or uh, Facebook were to be you know they were to back away from this stuff and and you know maybe remove all links. You know, at one point, I think I had a proposal uh, where I, I was asking, you know, Facebook, hey, what if we just got rid of all the public news and just focus on friend content? Um, but, you know, it's, it's a question where then you can ask yourself, well, what happens next? Who builds the thing that replaces it? 
And do we just ban all types of news from that outlet or what, you know, what something's going to replace it, right? And the question is, what is going to replace that? Is it any better? Uh, what if it's worse? I, I, I don't know, right? And, and so, so I really see it as like, I'm trying to figure out, personally, I'm trying to figure out what is a better solution that allows for users to inform themselves about what's happening in the world, learn about what their friends are up to, but maybe doesn't cause these effects that we're seeing. And then from there, see, okay, who can build that? And is Facebook willing to do it? Oh, no, they're not. Okay, how can we find a way to like build this thing? And, and those who are in the way of getting that built, let's find a way to like overcome that. And in the meantime, the way I see it is, I, I just don't know if anyone's figured out a solution to this. I, I, I look at every other alternative to Facebook and I just see another version of Facebook. I, hmm. you know, I, I hope that we can find something else, but everything just looks like another version of Facebook. And, and so I just see it as like, we banned Facebook, we got, we got Twitter, we banned Twitter, we got Reddit. And, and, you know, and of course you've got state owned services and you've got all, you know, you've got all kinds of, uh, uh, different solutions. I, I personally, for example, I'm a fan of the idea that government officials, elected government officials should have a way to share updates, bite-sized updates uh, with their constituents uh, via an app on their phone, for example. I, I think that would be a great, a great opportunity, right? For people to be able to do that. I, I think that would be interesting. But, but then again, you still have the same problem. Are these all going to be other versions of Facebook? So what's scary to me is how much this works well in the sense that people feed off of these stories. They make, people can make money off of this. It's so, it's so centralized. It's so prone to growth, right? It, it's so easily, it can, it can just spread it like a virus. And there's no alternative I think anyone has come up with to stop this. So, so I, I mean, there's some big questions around solutions to this that I think involve massive changes to society that I don't I don't even know if it's possible. I, I mean, sorry to be a little pessimistic, but... <laughs> well, Michael, in the few minutes we have left with you, tell me about yourself and yeah. finding your voice and coming of age and coming out and everything, just having perspective and the finally the courage of your convictions when you're kind of running scared like many children of immigrants are, yeah. you know, to provide, to prove and everything. You have been for most of your life, but now you can kind of exhale, write a book. Tell us about yeah. this and, and being more circumspect in your mid-20s. Yeah, I, um, I am so happy that I have the luxury right now to be able to think about things other than paying the mortgage. <laughs> like, I know that sounds stupid, but like, that's the happiest thing for me is like the ability to just, just sit down and think, oh, wow, I can think about like, what the effects of this and this are and how this is going to cause, you know, this kind of societal change or like, I, I just feel grateful that I have the opportunity to even think about these things or even just try and postulate where, where in the past, I think my whole life was just, okay, how do I pay for this? How do I pay for this? How do I pay for this? How do I pay for that? And, and ultimately, I think to tell you a little bit about myself and, and how I try and operate now, I, I try and set a goal for myself every year, maybe like a theme for a goal where like I have like a theme of what I try and do every year. Uh, and this year for me has been, the theme has been health, both mental health and physical health. And, and I think I've, I've tried my best to, to stick to that goal of, of just everything in my life has to have an aspect of that theme. And, and really from there, I've tried to just blossom a little bit more on the social side too. And of course, over the past few years, as I've 
lost weight. I go to the gym and I go on dates. I discovered, oh, I, I like guys. Oh, shoot. I, I guess that's that's my life now. And just being open about that and initially being a challenge with my family in Peru and seeing, you know, how are people going to react? And, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about that, too, and like how awkward it was for me to realize this, where I would turn on guys on Tinder as well as girls. And then I would like not swipe on any of the guys. I would swipe left on all the guys and I would only look at the girls. And then uh, and then eventually I would like swipe right on one guy. And but then I wouldn't message them. And there was like a, a period of time where I was just trying to understand myself a little bit more from there. And, um, and it was I mean, it was interesting. It was interesting to see how I've I've slowly tried to become a little bit more self-aware over the years. It's been hard. And I think I think it's been the hardest thing. But the thing that I go by the most at this point is I look back at myself three, four months ago, you know, periodically. And I ask myself if looking back at that version of me, if I cringe or not, I have to cringe, right? If I don't cringe looking back three or four months, then I haven't grown enough. It's kind of what I tell wow. myself, right? Uh, and so I try to do that. Uh, but then when it comes to making decisions in my life, I don't just use the current version of myself because I'm always changing. And so I try to combine every instance of myself from every year of my life and have that version of Michael Sayman come in and give an opinion. So I'll have 16-year-old Michael Sayman give an opinion on what I should do. 17-year-old, 18, 19, 20-year-old. And, and I combine those with the version of myself today and what I would want to do today and then make my decisions based on the, the, the collective version of me, like the four-dimensional version of me, if that makes any sense. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so anyways, that's, I, 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 yeah. That's... Well, I have to ask you in closing, Michael, and it's been so great finally having you on, isn't it surreal for you to step back with your, situ- your story started in Miami and to hear in the year 2021 all these breathless pieces about Miami being Silicon Valley 2.0 now that everybody can work remotely during the <laughs> pandemic? I mean, I laugh too when I read it, but what's your quick take on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's an interesting opportunity. I think it's a, an amazing opportunity, to be honest. It's Miami's not a city like the other cities in the U.S. Uh, there's a unique culture here where you really have a, a mix of countries, languages, you know, origins that, to me, I feel will present an interesting, I guess, an interesting background for the newcomers from Silicon Valley uh, to, to mingle with. And I, I'm just curious to see how it goes. You know, in, in other cities, there's stories about how, you know, these Silicon Valley folks come in and then they just take over and then they don't, they don't talk to the local community and that's it. But I don't know if, uh, if the Cuban population in Miami is going to take that. You know, <laughs> I think, I think there's a little bit of a, a different culture here, you know, and I, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to provide some more perspective to the Valley that I think is necessary. We become more diverse and there's, there's more of a Hispanic population growing. And I'm pretty sure in 50 years or so, uh, Hispanics are going to be one of the, the largest minority groups in the country or, or maybe even the largest uh, ethnic group in the country. So, so I think there's a lot to be learned uh, in Silicon Valley from, from the move to Miami. I think it's great. You were listening to Michael Saman, the self-taught software engineer who joined Facebook at the tender age of 17, 18, I think 16. You were, it was almost violating child labor laws, right? <laughs> well, you'll see about that in the book. We'll see what, what it says. <laughs> please, please do read the book. The book is App Kid, How a Child of Immigrants Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. You are always welcome on this show, sir. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. 
Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Nader Lee. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please follow and rate us. You can follow on Twitter at Full D Radio, Instagram at Full D Radio, ditto Facebook at Full D Radio. Holler, you can DM me on any platform. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>